This is the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast, recorded May 14th, 2015. On this episode, we talk about Sierra Online, their storied history, and their most influential games. We're lucky to have joining us two of the most knowledgeable Sierra collectors, Pascal and Stuart. And now, here's Pascal. Well, where to start? This is such a huge topic. I mean, you, you, Sierra did, did so, so many things back then, developing from, from a two-people business, having the idea, you know, creating games, um, to, to one of the largest um, publishers for interactive gaming software in about 20 years, from, from the late 70s to like 2000, before they were acquired by another company. It's they they are so what what to say you know, they are they are known for so many things they did they influenced video gaming a lot they influenced publishing of video gaming a lot they did a lot of things besides gaming. Do Just one comment if you if you the book Hackers by Stephen Levy has a really good um, I thought it was a really good introduction to the early days of Sierra like he spends like a third of the book on it. And he talks about people you, that you, you may not have heard of otherwise because they're not like adventure game guys. It's people that developed a lot of the early titles that they had, the action titles like Jawbreaker and you know, I can't even think what they are, Crossfire and Mineshaft and all that stuff, which you don't think about, but that probably propelled a lot of the actual adventure gaming stuff you know, in terms of funding it until they were able to like just sort of turn solely to that for a long time. But But to your point, Pascal, it seems like they, they had like a sort of a curved um, history, like a, in terms of a graph. Like in the beginning, it was like tons of random stuff that they made. I mean, I guess Ken and Roberto were, was interested in the adventure games, but lots of different things. Then in the middle of their history, they focused like solely on adventure games pretty much with a couple of odd titles there like Zilliard and Slipede and a Ted Tank Killer or whatever else. And then towards the end, it was like they went back to like crazy publishing like every single random thing you could think of and like home design programs and cooking programs and, like, all these other things that, that I didn't care about Half-Life. personally. And I was like, yeah, well, Half-Life was even after that. I think that was, like, already after Sierra was dead as a company and it was, like, just the name. But even when they were still, when it was still Ken Williams running it, they, I think they thought, like, the adventure market is, is too niche and they need to branch out into lots of other things. And from, from my perspective, they're just wasting their time. Like, I got the, cat, like the later catalogs, like, like, I don't know, a third of it is adventure games, and two-thirds is other stuff that I was like, who cares about this? Like, flip, 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 and let's get to the, the good stuff here. And I don't know if that was I good for them or if that was bad. I don't know. I think it's quite interesting that Sierra basically helped create the, the very image we have of the, of the graphic adventure game and saw it right through to its decline in the... In, in the uh, Late 90s, early 2000s. Um, it's kind of it's, and we're kind of seeing the remnant parts of Sierra around for its research, uh, for its resurgence. Although I'm sure we'll get to that a bit later. Of course, Sierra did uh, did publish uh, some other games, including including, and I swear this is going to be the only mention of Origin this session. So Joe had better exploit it if he's going to, including some from uh, some from the company that would that would become, uh, become Origin Systems. That is correct, KG. You're absolutely right. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to jump in on this since the resident experts are all here, and I'd rather hear them talk about their different areas. But uh, if you would leave a moment open for me to jump in in that regard, uh, I'd love to. But let's let's get back to the history of Sierra. I want to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, what is um, Stuart said it 
very precise. You know, they did so many different things and not, not the games they were really known for. They, if you look up Sierra Catalog, what they did in the years, it is incredible. So many stuff I've never seen or heard about before. Typewriter software, and I don't know what kind of, of software they did. But um, what they are really known for, I mean, they, they write a lot of adventure game history. You know, we mentioned the um, Mystery House, first um, graphic adventure game that was ever released. Um, started like like Roberta, it said that Roberta was inspired by Colossal Cave Adventure, which we you know was the first text adventure that was ever released. Um, he wanted to have graphics there. It was not the first game with graphics at all. Um, RPG games at that time, and there were a few early RPG games available with graphics, but Mystery House was the first um, graphic adventure game that was 1980. Um, same year, uh, The Wizard and the Princess was released. It was the first um, full-colored graphic adventure game um, of the history. Um, one year later, in 81, Soft Porn Adventure was released. It was one of the first adult-themed computer games in history. This guess was really a huge thing back then, at, at that time. Um, <clears throat> if you hit head one year forward to, to 82, it was Time Zone. Um, time Zone was really a huge thing in, in a lot of ways. Um, it said that it's still the most expensive game of all time because it was one of the first, it was the first game with a bigger development team um, back at then. Uh, games were mainly done by one, maybe two people in 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 about a month or so. Most time it was the development process was was less a month. And Time Zone was a game it said like 12 to 14 months in development. Released on on six discs, double size, so so 12 discs in space. So everything Time Zone did back then was like 10 to 15 times bigger than ever ever done before. It has like over 1,400 screens. Um, average games back then had like 90 screens. You, know, you can go through and, and have your adventure. So, so they they did so many things. Not not ever, uh, not all of them were successful. Time Zone definitely was not a successful title. It was sold for 100 bucks. That was again <laughs> more than than average games or games were sold for um, back then. But but they tried a lot of new things. They set standards. They wrote gaming history and yeah, we, we know them for so many so successful series. King's Quest, Police Quest, Space Quest, Larry, Larry Quest for Glory, Laura Bow. I mean everyone has guessed played an and Sierra adventure game. So, so just to pick up to pick up on that, because you, you covered the early part of it really well, other firsts, like King's Quest was certainly one of the first third person adventure games, if not the first. We actually could move the character around the screen. That by itself was like so cool at the time. I remember it was it was amazing. Um, they pushed hardware tremendously, so they were one of the first companies to take advantage of VGA and really push it. They were one of the first companies that that they're probably the first really to take advantage of the sound cards and, and really push the sound cards. They were selling the sound cards at you know for the sound card companies to make sure you could have a sound card, you could get the full experience out of the game. First with the you know the early you know I guess you know ad lib type stuff and then the, all the speech later on, they were they heavily pushed CD-ROM technology. Even before that, they heavily pushed three and a half inch discs because in the, in the PC world, it was five and a quarter inch disc and like Atari S ST and Amiga was three and a half, but for PC it was five and a quarter. And I remember they put both sides discs in the box. And when I was I was a five and a quarter inch guy and I was like, what am I doing with these squares here? Like. Um, 
<laughs> put away somewhere. But then years later, I was like so happy that they did that because then like that was so much more convenient to play them again. So they're they're pioneers in so many respects when it came to hardware, especially, and then also the the you know, the point and click, the mouse control with the icons. They're certainly one of the first that did that. I don't know if the first, but certainly one of the first, and they're the ones that popularized it. So they were pioneers in just so many respects. I think what's quite interesting, and you touched on this before, is that they also brought it. Uh, they also actually, as a publisher, bring in games uh, from regions that weren't kind of mainstreamed into uh, into the U.S. Uh, uh, games publishing market. Because originally, global games publishing was quite disparate. You ha you didn't have the sort of international releases you, uh, releases you do. People, if, if you were lucky, people would just slap an, a distributor would just slap a sticker on a box and uh, then, and, uh, then uh, import, and import it and sell it to you at a significant markup. What, the game I've been showing my example, Sierra fi uh, five, and a, uh, 5 and a quarter, 3 and a half inch just from here, is uh, my copy of Sorcerian, um, uh, which, is, which is one of several, along with Dexter, uh, several, uh, is one of several games that they released uh, that were uh, originally released in Japan. Uh, this, this is by, uh, by, Fal uh, by uh, uh, Nihon Falcon, and lo and behold, it has the uh, a, um, has the uh, AT version uh, again, pushing the power of your system. And it's not what you think of as a Sierra, as a Sierra game. It's just kind of a side-scrolling RPG. It's not what you think of as a typical JRPG either. But it was a rather, uh, rather well, to me personally, a rather interesting, uh, rather interesting game, and uh, it brought uh, these Japanese, it brought uh, the notion of Japanese computer games to the uh, to the U.S. And similarly, they later worked with uh, Cocktail Vision in France, and I'm sure someone will raise some of their games in the future. So I think that's a fairly important aspect of their role. So I'll say quickly, in terms of the origin stuff, I think you said before that. The reason why Sierra published some of the Origin games was they were the only ones that were willing to make the big boxes and the, the feelies and stuff and the specifications that Richard Garriott would accept. So Time Zone that Pascal mentioned before, I mean, it was a really big box also in addition to everything else. And I think it's the same size box as the Ultimate 2, if I'm not mistaken. It's pretty close if it's not the same. And as said, yeah, it is, it is a thin box. It is especially like the Ultima box. Um... Stuart mentioned it. I guess it has the same size of it. Yeah, but then just in terms of well, the innovation, just in terms of all the the output they cranked out in the adventure game world, aside from all the other stuff they did, all the series. I mean, just you know, I, everybody knows them: King's Quest, Space Quest, Police Quest, Quest for Glory, Leisure Suit Larry, and all the others that people don't know about so much: Conquests and Manhunter, and you know, I can go on f like, probably for a long time. There's just their, their output was just so prolific over a relatively short span of years. I mean, that's really why they're so beloved. It's just some of these great series and the great people that worked on them, like you know Al Lowe and the two guys from Andromeda and Ken and Roberta Williams and Jim Walls and everybody else out there, um, Laurie and Corey Cole, Laurie and Corey Cole, etc. You, you say a relatively short time span. I think Sierra has one of the biggest ongoing time blocks in the video game industry. I mean, if you put EA aside, and they were just buying everybody else's company, Sierra went on with, I mean, they started when? 1980, right? Yeah. And, but most of the, like, all the series... They officially released their last game. 1998 or something like that, in terms of, like, before they were bought, like, Gabriel Knight 
'93 is when 1999, I think. That's unbelievable. It's a 20-year span. Right, but if you, what, I, what I meant was, if you think about it, King's Quest One came out in 1984, and they were really started rolling with like having a bunch of series that were going on together. Maybe 1987. I'm I'm thinking. Heroes Quest was 1988, I think. I mean, they, they really had, like, all their series going in parallel around 1987, and they were going, like, super strong, I would say, from 87 till about 92 or 3 was when a huge amount of their output came out, and they had some, you know, stragglers that choked in after that, after they were really diversified more. But in terms of that core period where they were just doing adventure games, I think it was a relatively short period, actually. They were so specialized in... Adventure games. Um, from my personal experience, what it actually ended up happening was um, they were rolling with these adventure games. They were popular; people were buying them. Um, they were cool. The graphics were were awesome. And then Doom came out. Then Doom was like, you know, just changed everything. Doom just everyone was playing Doom, and they were like, "Holy crap!" I don't know that they really had an answer uh, for that. And um, John Romero and, is never invited back now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not their fault, you know, but all of a sudden, um, first-person shooters were what were selling completely, and it just kind of drowned the adventure games out. I think also you've, you kind of had an evolving, pro, an evolving profile, not only of, not so much of users per se, but of marketing and of the price lowering of PCs to come more into, li more into line with consoles. Which again, I, th I think you had some of the potentially some of the console market drifting uh, drifting towards PC, uh, PCs, and that probably had an effect on on the uh, market as well. Although that's probably a subject for an entire episode its own. Yeah, the question in my mind, really, this is the the general question: is is it really true that the market for adventure games declined, or even that it relatively declined? Because I think most people, most people would say that Doom took away the whole audience of adventure gamers. It's more like the audience expanded. And the, the amount of people that want to play Doom-like games were greater than adventure games, let's say. But my question is, is that really was that really true, or was that just a perception of the different, you know, the suits and the marketing guys or whatever else? Or was it true enough that... I don't claim it as anything more than my personal perception or, like, my personal history of playing. You know, I just kind of lost interest in adventure games when Doom came out and just kind of rediscovered an interest in them pretty recently. Well, what you're saying is certainly like the, the popular perception because I mean that's basically why a lot of these companies were able to get funding to make adventure games is because people were saying that you know folks are not interested in playing them. So you know, the the ones that were making adventure games were like struggling pretty mightily, and a lot of the you know good studios that were making them got shut down or they got absorbed or whatever else. There's, there was always a few guys, you know, a few companies still making them throughout the years continuously, but. It was not like necessarily getting a lot of funding or marketing. But LucasArts still did incredibly well with theirs, and all of their, uh, some of their masterpieces came out after Doom. I mean, Day of the Tentacle and Full Throttle and uh, 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 the Day of the Dead one, Manny. Grim Fandango and the Last Monkey Island game, uh, between them, they, the developers knew they would be the they would be pretty much the last now, the last death now of adventure games. I mean, you've got interviews with developers at time of release saying, yeah, we, we knew that we know this is it. Uh, and I think some, that touches on something that we can't really underplay. Um, the media love a good story, and the game and uh, the games press was starting to do really quite well for it. Well, was doing quite well for itself at the time. Um, and beyond my personal gratitude for that income stream, um, 
there was there was a certain amount of drama to be drummed up in saying this genre is dead. This this uh, this uh, this developer's hyperbolic. This person is in, this person is insane. This is popular. This guy's a god. Let's set up a false rivalry. It's like music magazines that decide they're going to they're going to uh, set up some kind of uh, petty fight between bands. And I think and it, has, it still is today. Yeah, it's like Grim Fandango. You know, was a masterpiece, but it was also kind of remembered as being a catastrophic, like failure of a sales piece. You know, and I think. A lot of those games are worth a lot to us, or because, like, if I think about the last adventure games that came out, like Neverhood, which sold terribly, Grim Fandango sold horribly, Full Throttle was an excellent game, but I don't remember it selling, like, extremely well either. I don't think it was, like, a runaway smash hit. I remember the time when I couldn't get away from the Neverhood. I mean, it was, it was literally all around me. Microsoft was pushing that as hard as they could. Do you have any numbers that prove that they weren't big sellers? Only that it's considered a rare game now, or a rare-ish game. You know, that's all. Well, anecdotally, I, I agree. Just, I mean, I one thing about Sierra, going back to Sierra for a second, they all said the standardized boxes, and they all said on them, it's not that they're the same size, they all said, like, a 3D animated adventure game, you know, maybe for adults, whatever it was, but... 3D, you know, they're, they're all the same type of thing. When you, when you saw Sierra Box in the store, you knew it was an adventure game. You knew what you were getting. I remember I went to the store and I saw Full Throttle, and I was like, I have no idea what kind of game this is. It, like, it doesn't look like any adventure game I've ever seen before. It looks like some kind of, like, 3D action game or something. And I don't think they wanted to advertise, say, hey, this is an adventure game because they're afraid people won't buy it then. They're just trying to sell it for the atmosphere. And as a result, an adventure gamer, I was like, I don't know. Say they have to be a circle of blood... Broken Sword 1, it doesn't look like an adventure game from like the, the cover or anything. Same thing with Grim Fandango. So I think actually the standardization and the fact that like in Sierra, you do like... Sierra's putting out something else that has a Sierra level of quality, you know, theoretically, at least. And I think they pretty much did. And I can trust that whatever they put out is going to be something that I'll, I'll enjoy playing. Whereas, in general, I think the market fragmented quite a bit with the different shaped boxes and the different wildly different marketing and you just didn't know what you were getting at, some, at a certain point. On uh, Wikipedia, I've got Neverhood, which is freaking Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, of course. But this is probably fairly standard. The Neverhood sold only about 42,000 copies. An additional 600,000 OEM copies were purchased by Gateway and pre-installed on their computers. Over the years, it turned out Neverhood also received a huge fan base in Russia and Iran and has result massive bootlegging, copying, distribution, and blah, 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 blah. So 42,000 copies is, is pretty abysmal for a that game sale. Uh, David also posted uh, Grim Fandango sold between 100 and 500,000 units. They already pulled funding for more games like that by that point based on the interviews I'd seen. So it didn't matter how well it did, it was do the future was doomed. But is that lifetime sales or is that like in the first year? Because they still sell DVD cases of it, so that's, that's what I'd be curious about. Sometimes these things have a long tail. I think it it's, comes the total. Out. it's the total, I think. Yeah, so some, it comes out, nobody buys it the first couple of years, it becomes a cult classic, and then if they're still selling it somewhere, if they reissue it, then they can you know, take a nice uh, long-term profit, but it doesn't mean anybody bought it at the beginning. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this back onto topic, because we've got onto the, cha onto the changing market for adventure games, and while that was important to Sierra, it's kind of, we're, we're kind of drifting off to Microsoft, uh, to Microsoft and Lucas great deal. Um, actually, you were talking about standardized boxes and knowing what you get, Stuart. I mean, along with Sorcerian, here I have the Laugh Utilities and Johnny Castaway, which 
I was just trying to pick up the three least Sierra Sierra games in my in my collection. This is I'm getting the latter utilities. Actually, this is this is the uh, international version of the latter utilities, which um, I wasn't aware there was a different. There was there were different versions. It certainly just looks like a sticker slapped onto the U.S. version, but it has. I, this was Alo's joke data, jokes database and a parody of the Northern <laughs> Utilities themed after the Larry games, rather than being any sort of adventure game. And then you've got Johnny Castaway, which I, which is arguably the least good value title I ever bought. I, it's an interactive screensaver. Pascal is a great fan of it, I know, because it appears in his icon. And it is very amusing. It was back when we had CRT monitors still worried about screen burning. Although I'm never sure, what, no, with Ireland positioning, I was never quite sure of how good it would be against that. It was basically a soap opera of this guy on a desert island, and uh, the thing is, it was priced very similarly to a to a full-on adventure game, and it was box-like one. Yeah, that was a that was a bit of an unusual one. Like I continued, and I continue to be quite amb uh, quite ambivalent. In terms of investment, you, 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 I think that was the best investment you made, though. Yeah. You, you felt like you got a little return then, but if you, now you got a good return. Is it quite right? Well, so it didn't sell very well. I take it. Yes. Your point is well taken, though, about the standardization to what I made before. I mean, I guess for the Sierra world, there was there was I had, I owned so many Sierra releases and I had so many copies of the Sierra catalog that like I knew very clearly like Johnny Castaway is a screensaver and you know Laugher Utilities is not a game and you know that type of thing. But it's it's a good point. And I guess the Sierra output, like I said before, was so prolific compared to LucasArts output. How many adventure games did LucasArts have in the same period? Like maybe ten. And Sierra had like what, like thirty or forty, or it's a very large number. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it seemed like it was pretty, pretty high up there. So okay, that's the other thing. If you have numbers of teams working in parallel, which really helps, so you could buy a new King's Quest game and a new Quest for Glory game and a new Larry game. Particularly around uh, when uh, King's Quest Five came around, I remember a load of uh, there was this whole stack of Larry Five and, and Willie Beamish and King's Quest Five and a bunch of other things were all seen released around the same time or at least reached my bit of Europe at the time. I wanted to show something for just a second that just was showing off the amount of prolific, uh, the prolific aspect that uh, Stuart had mentioned. As I showed before, there was, you know, the original release of Ultima 2. And what I think is really funny is that for game collectors, it was very odd because there was a card in here that says that you have one of the very first copies of Ultima 2, which is basically, it says, hey, we screwed up the uh, manual. So here's some corrections for the manual. This card alone drives the price ridiculously because I guess some people say that it proves that this is one of the first copies. But what I wanted to get to is that after that, that was put out by what they called Sierra Venture, the Sierra Venture series. They re-released it as the Sierra Online version of Ultima 2 in a black box. And then they had a different size map. They then released it again by Sierra in a gray box, which is the same game. They just kept putting it out over and over and over. So on top of coming up with so many games, it was so prolific specifically because they were re-releasing things as well, and they'd sell yet again. Uh, in Japan, they put out their own version, 
which I think this is a legal copy. This is put out by StarCraft. Mm -hmm. It is illegal. Uh, I think it's legal. It is legal, right? So, uh, but StarCraft is the main publisher in Japan, publishing a lot of games and a lot of the other games. Yeah. Yeah, but there were there were so many they would re-release them and make more money over these things, just changing a little bit at a time. And so, they're their prolifics extended to re-releases as well as various but titles. Talking about uh, China, so what I liked a lot is they, they don't only simply re-release it, they really ported them to, to local, how to say, to local needs or so. So they, they put in put in Chinese, Japanese language, you no know, whatsoever. They my my most uh, favorite example for, for that one is um, Police Quest 2. This is the um, Chinese version of the game, and you have to look that one out on YouTube wow. to find a gameplay version of um, of Police Quest 2. Because what they did with that game is they do not only add um, Chinese um, language to the game, they modified the graphics. They changed it to like a manga style of the game. So if you you, you play the character with like yellow crazy hair because it everything is more manga like the, the eyes are bigger and stuff if you look out and there's a nice comparison video on YouTube showing the um, Japanese version compared to the uh, original one and that is stuff I like ne? so they really really put it to to local things and manga as we know is a huge thing over there so that one looks really fun and you can play it totally in in English or in Japanese you can type in English you can type in Japanese of course I'm limited to English at that point, but um, that is really something I, I like a lot. Another point related to, to that and to what Joe said is, in terms of remakes, they definitely not just re-release the same game or even localize it a certain way, but they're one of the first, if not the first, to do remakes of their own games. Like um, King's Quest 1 got remade. It was, it was still EGA, and they did VGA version of Space Quest 1, and they just Larry 1. Um, and Quest for Glory one, um, so and please Quest one that I say that one. So yeah, so they, I mean, basically they they remade a lot of their old stuff and they made it a lot better and they and it sold. They sold it for a cheap price also because I guess they figured they're just redoing the graphics and the interface and not redoing the whole game design and puzzles and everything else. But they're pretty cool. In terms of remakes. And uh, looking at the key of the time, we should probably move on. But to wrap, uh, to wrap up, there's there's currently a number of uh, games being produced, both uh, sort of with varying levels of involvement from former Sierra st uh, Sierra staff, that are carrying on the heritage of uh, Sierra series. Either use either, for example, the new King's Quest that's that's coming out that uh, I know some of our members have uh, opinions about, uh, all the way to um, Sort of, uh, sort of more spiritual successes, like uh, um, uh, well, for example, I just started uh, started playing uh, playing the Quest for Infamy games, which is so so in uh, inspired by the uh, by the uh, um, uh, Quest for Quest for Glory games. Um, so it's obviously made uh, made a mark that even though the company is now a trading a trading uh, brand of, Act of Activision, am I recalling correctly? Um, you, you can't really escape, escape how much of an influence they have. So, what's, uh, does anyone have thoughts on the recent manifestations of all things Sierra? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm very disappointed that they waste time making yet more remakes. That's my main thing. 
Leisure Suit Larry 1, okay, at least they added voice to it, so there was something there, but the Gabriel Knight, to me, was just a huge waste of time. They could have been making some other game, whether Gabriel Knight or something else, just something better. I'm, I'm excited to see, like, some of the stuff that hasn't come out yet, like the, the space venture for the two guys. Um, that's been in works for a long time, so looking forward to that, but, you know, who knows if it'll be any good or when it's even going to come out. But uh, I'm not extremely excited. But nothing has been released that made me feel like, oh, my God, this is this is back to the old glory days. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah. What about the um, Hero U that um, Corey Cole's working on? I'm looking forward to that, too, but it's also not released yet. <laughs> I'm I'm looking the one I'm looking most for is to be honest Space Venture. I'm really really looking forward to that one which the two guys are making who are responsible for Space Quest of course and um looking for other ones as well Hero you of course um but the ones I've seen so far I agree to what Stuart said uh, they were not really it was not like like back then um not talking about the graphics or so it's it's the overall um opinion about that I'm it some know already my opinion about the new King, King's Quest that uh, will, will come Come on, up. share your opinion about the new King's Quest. I won't share it. Oh, come on. I will just say I, I wait for, for my final judgment. Um, I, I doubt it will be the kind of game I would like to see a new King's Quest um, for, but, but we, will have, we have to see and wait. But sometimes I think it is better to keep things dead to be honest, um, I don't know why Activision has to, to, uh, yeah, to get get Sierra back to life. They could have some do something else. If you look at the games they have released so far, um, the games they are planning to release, I'm not sure if that was overall a good idea. I understand why they do it because it's a powerful name, it's a powerful brand and stuff. But expectations, especially from from players from back then, I guess they're not able to to meet them. Um, if, if they do nice games and new players are happy with them, be my guest, it, it's fine, but I don't think I will be a huge fan. Right now I think the guys who did games back then um, and developed new games which are similar to, to Sierra games, they are the titles we, we need to take a closer look to, but I don't think Activision Sierra will really do something great there. I think the reason why they're doing it is pretty clear. Like, recently in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, there were a lot of fan remakes of King's Quest games that I think were pretty popular. There's a Silver Lining, which is a new King's Quest game, which I haven't played yet because they haven't finished it yet, but it seems to have been pretty popular. When the, when they gave the license briefly to Telltale, and they didn't do anything with it. That was, like, a big deal. Like, oh, my gosh, like something's going to happen here. I think they saw there's there's demand for King's Quest, the problem is, like you said, they gave it to these guys, the odd gentlemen, I think they're called, who've never done an adventure game before, and like, that's why nobody's really excited about it, because it's like, okay, we'll see what happens, but I guess at the end of the day, like, they're making something, and we'll see. Hopefully it'll be, you know, something good. It won't be like Leisure Suit Larry, Magna Cum Laude, or Box Office Bust, or, or one of those, <laughs> but I mean, we have to wait and see, I guess. Thanks for listening to the Big Box PC Game Collectors Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. You can also watch the original video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel, which includes the show and tell segments.
It's not the size of the box, it's how you use it. <laughs> Indeed. We possibly ought to make that the local motto.